The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello and welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you could join me because I have such a special guest, a very interesting person that I was introduced to just recently. So I'm excited for the conversation today. Muzz Murray is a teacher that you just don't see very often, so I'm really happy that he was able to be on the show today. He's also known as Ramana Baba in India. He's a mystic and mantra master with half a century of spiritual and yoga experience, psychotherapy, and meditation, and he is the real deal. That's why I'm saying he's a teacher that you just don't see very often. I was introduced to Muzz and his work, and I've been reading his book, You Are the Light, Secrets of the Sages Made Simple, which is literally the A to Z of questions and answers of all things spiritual, from Advaita to yoga and everything in between. Muzz joins me right now from his home in Portugal. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you could join me. I really hope people head over to your website and read your biography because I spent some time reading uh, over there. And, you know, even though it's the edited version on the website, I, I found you absolutely fascinating. You've done so many interesting things. You've traveled the world as a young man, running into people like Salvador Dali in Spain and David Bowie and Mark Bolan in London. You launched a magazine in the 60s called Gandalf's Garden and even spent time as a sadhu wandering through India and Nepal. I mean, I'm waiting for the movie. This should all be a movie. Hopefully some, someone will hear this and get on it. It seems like you've always been a seeker, but you say in your bio that you really entered a spiritual path at the age of 24. So I guess that's a pretty good place to start. Can you tell us a little bit about your study and seeking a spiritual path at that time? Yeah, well, <clears throat> many of my students are, already pressing me to write my autobiography, and I've already made a start on that, is going to be called Memoirs of a Maverick Mystic, Journeys from Dali to Delhi. I like (laughs) it. But actually, I was never seeking a spiritual path. I knew nothing about it. I'd not even heard about yoga. I was just a rough kid from the Midlands, UK, setting off for adventure, and intending to hitchhike all around the world. It's pretty amazing the places that you've been and the people that you've seen and the things you've learned along the way. Uh, yeah, it, def- it would definitely would make a great movie. So when- I, Oh, sorry, I, I um, well, I, I set off um, to, uh, to go to India basically and um, by the time I got to Israel, I'd run out of money. And so I stayed there for a whole year um, to earn some money, working in a kibbutz for a start, 
working on a ship on the Red Sea, drilling for copper in the King Solomon's mines, um, training elephants in the zoo, working for the National Theatre and singing in a nightclub. And uh, one nightclub owner um, asked me to join his club, paying me twice as much. So of course I accepted. But the first club owner uh, rutted to me about me to the police saying I'd overstayed my permit. So I had to escape from Israel very quickly. And I went to Cyprus in the Mediterranean, uh, but I just had all my money stolen that I'd been saving up to carry on. And I arrived in Cyprus at a crossroads in my life when I had no idea where to go, what I could do. And I only had seven pounds, 50 pence in my pocket. That's all I had left. And I didn't want to go back home. And there was no way I could get to India with that amount of money. And I thought, where can I earn some money? And I thought the nearest place would be in Kenya, in Nairobi, uh, because that was a British colony at the time. But that was 3,000 miles down Africa. And so I thought, how can I do that? Anyway, that evening, I was sitting on a bollard on the quayside and watching the sun go down. And what happened was that I suddenly had this strange experience as if a ghostly hand was creeping up the back of my neck and placing an etheric brain on top of mine. And suddenly my consciousness seemed to expand away from my body, out across the ocean, out across the land, out into space. And I found myself everywhere in the universe at the same time. And I realized that the whole universe was made of consciousness. And this is what quantum scientists are only just beginning to discover today, 50, 60 years later. Um, and I was given revelation after revelation of how things operated in the spiritual world. And that completely bypassed my intellect, which had knew nothing about this kind of thing beforehand. It was a completely a bolt out of the blue. But the few minutes, it seemed like an eternity, but the few minutes that this experience occurred, I learned so much about life and the universe in those moments that changed the whole course of my life. And when I came back to normal consciousness, my eyes were like diamonds, seeing uh, everything clearly as if it was the first morning of the world. That's such an amazing experience, and especially to experience that so young, you know, at 24, you don't really no. know what's happening. And then to have that spontaneous 
experience happen uh, must have been just amazing. And that really set you on your path. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. I, it, uh, it changed everything. I was a smoker with a pipe of cigars and cigarettes. I couldn't smoke anymore. I threw my tobacco and the pipe into the River Nile. Um, I stopped eating meat and I stopped uh, fish and eggs and uh, gradually weaned off alcohol. Um, so my, my body would not support negative substances anymore. Wow, that's amazing. Now, I, I want to get more into your, your personal story too, but I do want to ask you about the book because I've been spending some time with it. It's very comprehensive. I mean, uh, this book uh, must be kind of a culmination of all of your, your teachings, everything you've learned over all this, all this time, you know, your whole, your time on the planet. How long did this project take to come to light? Well, really, it was about 50 or 60 years in the making. Uh, as I spiritually matured and gained deeper insights into what happened to me and how to shake off the shackles of the so-called mind, and I discovered ways to help people awaken without years of meditation, um, it all had to come out in the book. But in actuality, it took me about three years to write in order to answer the puzzling questions that my students desperately wanted answering, questions that have been bugging them for years. And these were questions that students asked you in seminars and workshops that you had. Yes, yes or sent me by email. Right. And do you feel that this is an important time to publish the book now? Is it, um, it your main but, intention to, to publish it now? Yes, because with the world in such a terrible state it's in at the moment, so many people are distraught, lost, questioning their existence, wanting to know what life is all about and what their purpose is. So my mission is to clarify their doubts and hopefully bring peace to their hearts and minds. Because the more people who are stable and sane, the less insane this apparent world appears. One, one reader of my book wrote in her review, she said, my country is in social and political turmoil and I've been feeling deep stress. This book helped me to go back to myself, reducing fear and anxiety. Reading it now, I am far less stressed, centered, and feeling the love and communication necessary to bring back the peace my country needs together with others. And that is the kind of reason why I published You Are The Light, especially now that I've retired from half a century of gallivanting all over the world, teaching in yoga centers in many countries. So I don't have any longer the opportunity to relate to my students face to face. And now I'm getting on in years, I want to leave a legacy and reach out to a far wider audience and pass on all I've realized that can help others to live a more conscious life. 
Well, the book is definitely coming out at a very auspicious time, that's for sure. We need your message now more than ever. So I'm so glad that we're able to, to talk today and share it with the Unity listeners and anybody else who happens to be listening to this podcast at, at whatever time, which is so great. We can share this message with people all over the world. So I'm, I'm excited that people will get to hear a lot of this. So <laughs> it's great. So, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time with the book and you can kind of open it up at different spots or read it right through, you know, wherever you happen to be at that time. But one thing that people always seem to ask about is, you know, beliefs and mental attitudes. And you say in the beginning of the book that you hope people can understand how misunderstood beliefs and mental attitudes, things that we learn from childhood and we bring with us over the years, that these are holding us back. They're really holding us back from a happy and fulfilling life. So I was curious, what were some of the beliefs that you had growing up that you had to let go of? Well, I forget what I had when I was a, a young a young fellow, but uh, it was mainly spiritual fantasies like uh, that so many seekers have, like uh, imagining there is a special guru waiting for you to come to him in India. Uh, there isn't. <laughs> or, that, <laughs> or that gurus have all the answers, but they don't. Many of them are brought up in a very narrow tradition and they only know what their tradition had laid down. So very few of them have a global view of spirituality. I never got one straight answer from a guru and I had to find all the answers for myself. And if they don't know the answer to a student's question, I saw that they will talk and talk until the student has forgotten what the question was, which is ex exactly what Bhagavan Rajneesh or Osho confided to me during a few days I stayed in his flat in Bombay. So there are so many gurus, so-called gurus, faking it. Um, and there's also the mistaken belief that getting initiated by a guru will transform your life, but it won't. It's mostly a charade to swell the ranks of the guru's following. But uh, luckily, because of my cosmic in initiation from whatever it is that governs this creation, my inner perception saved me from many of the mystical misapprehensions that I encountered in, in other students. Right, some of those pitfalls. So really uh, what, what I hear you saying is not to think that there's something outside of ourself that will save us. Like we want someone to have the answer and here, save, save me, you know, tell me what to do. And that's kind of a, a mis, misunderstood belief. Yes, absolutely. So I read from other spiritual teachers, uh, you know, maybe some other gurus. Uh, people seem to think we are in a particularly important time in our evolution. It seems to me that we might be moving backwards in some ways. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you feel that we're moving forward at a rapid pace right now in our evolution? Well, both things. Uh, as the old adage, adage has it, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. And 
the craziness of the situation today is the breaking of the eggs. There, there appears to be two opposing forces working in this dimension right now. A dark force that's bringing people down, darkening their minds, making the masses more dumb and sheep-like, behaving like automatons. And at the same time, there's a tremendous upsurge of spiritual awakening all over the planet that the media never tells you about. And this is the greatest hope for humanity. Yes, there is an upward trend really happening. Do you feel more people are searching? Do you think a lot of people have questions now more than ever? Yes, absolutely, because um, normally there is only 5% of any um, population that is interested in these subjects, but there seems to be some current ever since the 60s that is saturating the earth that is awakening a lot more people in every country to start to question their existence and i'm very hopeful about that well i'm well i'm very interested <laughs> i'm seeking so i'm hoping to get some answers from you today so as i'm as i'm reading the book and i really encourage that that people pick up the book if, if you're just tuning in i'm talking with muzz murray the author of you are the light Secrets of the Sages Made Simple. And do you suggest people use the book as a reference book or read just read the chapters they're drawn to? How would you suggest that? Yeah, I, I think some people will immediately jump to the subjects which are particularly relevant to them right now. And that's okay. The book can be dipped into here and there, um, but in fact, someone just sent me an email today asking me if I just send him the chapter on duty, as that is his most urgent dilemma today. But um, readers who start from the beginning of the book and work their way through the whole of it will find there is a golden thread of explanation that gradually deepens their understanding of what is normally the most difficult of metaphysical concepts. So if they go by it steadily and absorb chapter by chapter without racing through it, no wolfing it down, but just read a bit, be quiet, absorb what is said, listen with the heart, not with the mind, and they will get the most out of the book. That's that's good advice. I mean, I I did what you what you were saying. I kind of jumped through to chapters that attracted me, but then I went back and I'm starting to read it all the way through. So I'm still working my way through it because I want to read it through the from beginning to end. You know, very comprehensive. But I was very taken by your story because your life story is so interesting. So I think people should definitely start from the beginning and go and go all the way through. So on your website, it says that, you know, you're a mantra teacher and a meditation teacher, and you've done a lot of workshops. And yes. I've been really a student of meditation for the past few years, just really trying to build my practice, right? That's why they call it a practice, because you have to keep doing it. And I've been using a mantra, and I find it very helpful. 
some people feel apprehensive about using a mantra. What do you, what do you feel is the power of mantra? Oh, I could go on for an hour about this, <laughs> but uh, in brief, the whole universe is motivated and held together by different frequencies of sound. And every organ in the human body is singing its own note and it can be recorded. So sound is fundamental to our energy level. And in my mantra workshops, I use a particular method of mantra practice that I developed from an ancient mantric style, which speedily gets the students into a blissful state within an hour. And they find it wipes out the ceaseless movement of thoughts. It gives them joy, bliss, tranquility, utter peace, and yet a dynamic physical energy at the same time. They all tell me that mantra is like a life belt, helping to keep them afloat in troubled times. It's active on the physical level, the psychological, and it seems to soften the soul. Well, I enjoy mantra because it enables me to kind of take my mind away from those little thoughts that are bothering you that don't, you know, like, oh, what am I having for lunch today or something silly like that? And I'm able to move back, you know, to the meditation with the mantra. So I find it very useful. And someone um, that I was working with, a teacher, came from TM, you know, from Transcendental Meditation, and it was the sounds, you know, like Om, Sat Nam, and things like that. Is the method you teach similar? Sorry? Is the method that you teach similar to that, to transcendental meditation? Uh, no, not really. Well, uh, transcendental meditation uses bija mantras, yes. which are one, one sound. I do teach uh, how to activate the chakras or the psychic nerve centers in the body with using the bijas in a specific type of intonation. Um, so, no, that's the, interesting. Yeah, so the way I use the mantra is um, uh, I use nasalization and um, intonation like the monks who are singing their psalmodies. Um, like the Gregorian chant, like that, through the nose and using a breathing technique, which they don't use in traditional um, Vedic Vedic mantra, Um, but it works much, much faster to get students into a a deep state uh, like Samadhi. Right, right. It, it is amazing what you feel when you work with mantra, because I've been in, you know, a different yoga class or sitting with people in meditation. And when, you know, you'll do an ohm and you kind of feel it just vibrate through your body. It, re- it really is powerful. Yes, it, it's a, I call it a shower bath of the soul. <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned how, um, you know, quantum physics and 
you know, people that are really, really studying that are backing up what sages have known for thousands of years, right? What you were saying about frequency and vibration. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. It's so interesting. So I, I have to bring up, you know, the big G-O-D and, and the term God, because you know, everyone's, everyone's, you know, helps. <laughs> yeah, it's, a big, it's a big thing. So you use the term God in the book as really the self or absolute awareness. So are you saying that there's really no separation, that we are really pieces of the divine or of God? Because I think sometimes people think that God is like, kind of looking like you with, you know, the, the beard and, and the hair and everything, and that it's outside of us. But, but you yeah. feel a little differently, this, is that right? This, this is the big, biggest mistake that um, a lot of spiritual seekers make, and especially in Christianity, they posit a God out there. And <clears throat> the opposite is true. Uh, it, this has been the experience of sages since the dawn of time. If we want to talk in theological terms, God as the omnipresence is therefore has to be present everywhere, whether it's in the tiniest nanoparticle or in human consciousness. So that there is nowhere that God or the self, which is the yogi's technical term, there is nowhere where it isn't. And the sages for millennia have always come to the same conclusive experience that consciousness itself is God in operation, which is exactly what I was given to understand in my cosmic conscious awakening. And without consciousness, there is nothing. We don't even know we exist before there is consciousness, let alone God. So we're not pieces of the divine, but we are intrinsically God itself as the diminutive aspect of consciousness that we call mind. And I explain this in as many ways as possible in the book and in my videos on YouTube. And that's a, a really uh, big point for people to understand. We're going to take a short break and come back because I have so many questions for Muzz Murray, the author of You Are the Light, Secrets of the Sages, Made Simple. I hope you join me, we'll be right back. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray talking with Muzz Murray, author of You Are the Light, Secrets of the Sages Made Simple. And before the break, you made just a, a really good point on an important concept. And I just want people to understand what you were saying, because I think it's, I think it's a really important point and that people get, you know, a little, a little crazy and misunderstood with that, 
um, with that particular philosophy where, you know, we're, we're all a part of God is really consciousness. And I've even gotten in debates with people that they're saying, well, what do you think that you're God? Like, that's a, like, that's a horrible thing. I think people misunderstand that. So I just wanted to make sure that you could explain that point that it's all around us, right? We're all a part of, of God. It's not something separate. No, it isn't. Our, our consciousness is God in operation. So we are in the image of God, which always meant likeness. So we are like the Godness in the fact that we are conscious and we are just, uh, what's the word? Um, condensed forms of God. Yes. As <laughs> no, I think that's, I, I, that makes sense to me. That's how I've always, always thought about it which may have caused problems, you know, in different organ organized religions growing up because I always had questions, but that's how I understood it. This is why people suddenly experience oneness with everything, unity with everything, because everything is God consciousness. So there's nothing else. So you can't be separate from it. There is no separation whatsoever. It is only the sense of ego, which causes separation and the impossibility to connect with that which we lost uh, in infancy. Right, right. And you go into a, a great explanation uh, further on into the book on that. So I really hope that people pick this up and read it. So I wanted to ask you about uh, something else that I came across in the book. I just found these great points as I was reading that I wanted to ask you about. So you quote the great sage Ramana Maharshi in the book as saying we should speak out and act when we see injustice. And it seems looking around, the whole world is experiencing a massive shift in speaking out against things like racism and oppression. But oftentimes this leads to violence that, that we're seeing every day. I mean, do you think it's still possible to enact great change through nonviolence much like Gandhi did. Yes, I do. Um, just as Gandhi enthused the whole nation to refuse to comply with the orders of the small number of people who were governing them, or those who thought they were in control, they were completely helpless against the millions of people who stood up to them in order to be free from the yoke of oppressors. And that is what is needed today. If the whole nation wakes up to oppression and tyranny and refuses to obey, then 1% will become completely powerless. Civil non-compliance en masse is what will win the day. Right, right. And people need to remember that, I think, and go back to those teachings because we're, we're seeing such great change, but I think a lot of people are are being pushed, you know, into a more violent expression of that. And I don't think we have to do that. So, okay, now I'm going to ask you some really good, uh, you know, deep questions. We'll, we'll get a little bit more into, <laughs> there's so many interesting things in the book. So you explain the Tibetan concept of an after-death bardo. 
um, which is a kind of an in-between place where we go after we die. And you had a near-death experience in India that you described where your heart stopped and you were clinically dead for several minutes. And, you know, I, I was brought up Catholic and we were taught about a purgatory and that kind of thing. But I don't think this is the same as, as a purgatory, like I was taught in that concept. So I was just hoping you could share some of that after-death experience, what you saw in that bardo state. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you survived your Catholic upbringing. <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, you know, in, in Tibetan, ba means in between or a gap, and do means suspended or thrown into. So in spiritual usage, a bardo is taken to mean that immediate, intermediate state, the transitory plane in, when, in which one is mentally suspended after death. So what happened to me was after being obliged to hang on to the outside of an express train in India for 10 hours through the night, as it was impossible to get inside the jump pack carriages, I ended up with a raging fever. So my doctor guru in Rishikesh attempted to cure me with acupuncture. And I had needles stuck in my ankle, in my knee, in my thigh, in my wrist, in my elbow, shoulder. And then he stuck one right in my temple which felt like a horse needle. And from that, I felt death spreading out into my head. And my, my whole head became locked. My jaw became locked. My head became like concrete. And I said to gritted teeth, you better take this needle out. Otherwise, I'm going unconscious. And bang i fell and luckily he caught me before i hit the ground otherwise all these needles would have been driven into my body deeply anyway immediately i discovered myself floating up a rock arch which spanned the whole universe and there were some Pied Piper character, I didn't know if it was Krishna or what, because I never really related to Krishna, but there was a lot of people following him. And I can't say I was walking, but I sort of drifted up this um, rock arch, which went to infinity somewhere on the other side of the universe. Um, and suddenly I stopped because I had no idea how I got there. I had no idea where I came from. Um, and then I began to get troubles. And I, I thought, ah, maybe I am in the dentist chair because I had an experience when I was seven in the dentist when I shot out of my body and I was up on the ceiling when he put the gas, gas mask over my face. And um, so I thought it must be something like that. Um, then I thought maybe I'd been run over by a truck. Um, but then the life review began to occur to me. And I, I experienced myself as a baby being pushed out of the 
uh, tube and, um, and crying. And then things in my life growing up and everything all went in very, very fast uh, speed. And I thought, my God, this is the life review. So I must be dead. How am I thinking? And um, luckily, the mantra that I was always using came into my consciousness and stabilized me. So I knew that mantra is always there for you, whatever situation you're in. And it brought me together and I felt it taking me back down to my body. And as I entered the body, I heard the doctor shouting, quick, quick, get the electric shock machine. His heart stopped, his heart stopped. And this Indian attendant came running up and he took one look, look at this blue corpse of a, a European and promptly fainted. So he was there with his two bodies. And I said through my still gritted teeth, it's okay, I'm coming back. And he said, oh my God, in three more minutes and I would have had to throw your body in the Ganges. Wow. <laughs> I said, well, with gurus like you, who needs enemies? Right. <laughs> what a crazy experience. So you, you did see the life review and all of that in that state. That's so interesting. But so did you experience a sense of peace and well-being that people describe the, those feelings? Um, I didn't really have time for that. Um, I, well, I felt very, very changed and uh, uh, uncaring about anything much when I came back to normal life. Wow, that must have been amazing. So I'm curious, after having that experience, I mean, what what are your beliefs on heaven and hell, for example? I mean, I know those are kind of probably real, really Western ideas, you know, that we're taught that there's a place you go that's beautiful with angels and all that, and then bad people go to a certain place. Um, do you think there's some kind of fairness or judgment of evil deeds and that kind of thing? Or does that just not happen? Well, from my experience, um, from the account of others who've been resuscitated after dying in hospital, I have the impression that the afterlife dimension is actually tailor-made to our own proclivities. If we have a hellish mentality, then we're likely to be thrown into a hellish type of bardo. It's not that there are heaven and hell per se, but there are an infinite number of possible after-death experiences we might find ourselves in, depending on our previous mental attitudes. Or there might be nothing at all. Some people who are brought back to life just report a blank. So the Hitlers of the world, especially if their minds are agitated at death, are very likely to find themselves in hellish situations. Um, but there is also many accounts of people not being judged, but being shown their actions and actually feeling what they did to others so that they become um, uh, 
sorry about what they've done. And it may well be that if they don't have that, it may well be that they have to enter into another waking life dream in order to feel the suffering themselves as a kind of karmic payback time. Right, right. Okay. Oh, that, yeah, that, I mean, that does, that makes sense. So do you think that there is evil in the world? What do you think of that? Is that such a thing? Are some people just born that way or do we learn it? Yeah, well, it, it would seem that most people only become Ill, evil because of what happened to them in their formative years, things that negatively shaped their character or what they reacted against or something that thwarted their soul's aspirations or because they fell in with the wrong crowd and they got influenced by the evil tendencies of others. However, on occasion, it does appear to be that some are born with demonic forces already operating within them. And there are also cases of possession, which I never used to believe in until I experienced it in one of my workshops. And I managed to work an exorcism without quite knowing how, which got the entity released. So I intuit that there are demonic forces in the invisible world. But of what nature they are, I can't say. But equally, fortunately, there are also divine forces at play to counteract those demonic forces. Wow. So I wanted to ask you about attachments. This is just something I've seen in, in people close to me recently. So I was looking at this particular subject in the book. I mean, as humans, it seems we're very attached to a lot of things. We're attached to life. We fear death. We're attached to status and money, material things. Is it foolish to think that we can ever experience non-attachment? Not at all. There, there are many instances of sages that hung on to nothing at all. Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi for one. What the basic problem is, is that virtually everyone is attached to the ego personality that they have created for themselves. This sense of ego didn't arise until around the third year of life. In the infant, there's no sense of I or a me, and they're quite happy without it. But when the I appears in consciousness, around the third year, then that's when attachment begins. They've lost something from the paradisical experience of being in the kind of Garden of Eden that they enjoyed for three years of life. And that loss makes them want things from the outside. That makes them attached to greed, to getting things. I want it, I want that little infants always give you their toys and the sweets. And, but as soon as the ego sense or I appears, then it's, this is mine, it's mine, leave it alone, I want it. And this fictitious I manifests in the mind of the child. And the I of ego is the cause of attachment. 
and the cause of every other misery that's ever affected the world. Only when one is withdrawn from identified identification with the egoid eye can non-attachment occur. And I've outlined the steps by which this hopefully may be achieved in the book. Non-attachment is not disdaining everything and looking down on it and trying to keep it away. It's the complete enjoyment of everything without hanging onto it in your mind. Right. And it seems to be that if you are really going to achieve that, then you have to really live in the moment, right? Would you say that's true? For, for you to try to get to that non-attachment state, then you can't be worrying about what's going to happen in the future or regret things that you did in the past. What, what would you say about that? Like, do you try to live in the moment yourself every day? Yes, indeed. I, I don't mourn the past because everything I've experienced has shaped who I am here and now. Often I find my students have felt bad about wrong things that they did in the past. And I always tell them, look, that's what you were, not what you are now. It's water under the bridge. And as for the future, well, the way the world is going is certainly worrying. And I do tend to speak out for the sake of others, not to walk blindly into the crocodile government's mouth, but I don't worry about it. After half a century of practice, I do manage to live 99% in the now. I state the facts, but then I take consolation in the words of Ramana Maharshi, who said, let he who manifested the world look after it. Right. But so that's, that's a pretty good percentage if you're able to be, you know, 90, 99% or in the 90 percentile of being here in the moment. So I'm, I'm working towards that. I don't know if I'm at 90%, maybe 75. I'm trying. <laughs> I, I, I've, got, I've got problems with, with uh, the customs. Uh, I've got problems with registering my, my uh, re-registration to stay in the country uh, and difficulty in getting a Portuguese driving license and all these things. I can be fined uh, if I don't get it done before January the 1st, which is months ago. But I just don't worry about it. I, I'm living now, and whatever happens, happens. I let it happen. Right, and not attached to the outcome, no. right? Yes. No, I, I, I try. I'm, work, I'm working on that. So I wanted to ask you about this one saying that I hear all the time uh, from different teachers. It's, it's been attributed to a, uh, I believe a French monk named Pierre uh, Teilhard Chardin, I think was his name, but the saying is we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Do you, do you think that's true? Uh, yeah, this is attributed to Teilhard de Chardin. Yes, uh, I couldn't remember his name, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, I had that sticker on my car window for many years. Um, and so as we are essentially God in operation, 
having somehow become infused in a biological organism, which we leave at what is called death, then what is it other than spiritual essence that has left the corpse, a corpse behind? We are spiritual beings. Right, right. And we're just having this human experience in these carbon forms for a certain time. And and then we go on. So you would you would agree that we live many lives? Would oh, you say that? This this is a rather contentious point. Um, there are countless well-researched accounts of children who have died and returned to the consciousness of some other child who is able to take investigators to the towns and the homes of their previous families, name the people, the dog and the dolls, or take them to factories where they used to work and show them how to control the machinery. The evidence for this is mountainous, um, but it doesn't seem that this is always the case. Some memories are submerged until some outward event awakens them in later life. Now, I've had five such experiences and I've met people in this life that I have encountered in earlier centuries. But gradually I've come to conclude that it's not always the same consciousness or memory that survives. Sometimes the conscious slate is wiped clean and only the spiritual essence goes on. However, the, the thing to realize is that everything we perceive is only an appearance. And ultimately, it has to be understood that what arises in consciousness can only be a thought, right? So the very thought of existing, of being at all, is something that only occurs when consciousness arises. And without that happening, you don't exist, and nor does anything else. So what is it that reincarnates? I've come to understand that existence is a series of life dreams, cyclic life dreams. Consciousness, consciousness itself is in the nature of thought. So ask yourself, is it possible for a thought to reincarnate? Right. Okay. That's interesting. So if people have where I've, I've had a meditative experience where I thought that I've remembered something from another existence, you're, you're saying that could have been a, a previous dream or a previous life dream, life dream. Okay. But life dreams are relatively real, relatively real, just like a rainbow is relatively real. It's there. It's intangible. Uh, you can't touch it, um, but it seems to be real because of the um, environmental um, situation of the sun and, and light and, and the clouds and what have you. And the same way, the environmental aspect of the waking dream is that which is uh, living we are li we are living through as it were so it's this cyclic dream existence that comes and goes and comes and goes down through what appear to be the dream centuries okay 
Wow. It's been so amazing to talk with you. I, I have a lot of other questions, but we're running out of time. So <laughs> I wish I could, you know, I'll, I'll have to come up to up the mountain in Portugal. So, yeah. So I've asked a lot of other teachers this question. I was curious what you think. Do you think everything happens for a reason? Um, or do we just apply reason to events that happen? I really don't have any idea. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a good answer. If you're not, if you're not sure, because I always tend to think, does, was there really a reason, you know, for that earthquake or was it just an earthquake that happened? And then people said, oh, well, the reason was it was supposed to flatten this town so we could rebuild it. That was the reason why. So I don't, I personally don't think that there always is a reason. Yeah, this is the popular the theoretical <laughs> conception. However, I'm not, fully convinced while karmic repercussions are evidently for a reason and can sometimes be traced back to their origins sometimes there seem to be random events that have no evident reason at all and no no amount of attempting to puzzle it out ever offers a clue well in the great scheme of things there may be a reason, it's true, but I haven't given this proposition much thought, so I have to pass on this one. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Well, it's been so wonderful to talk with you, and I really haven't been enjoying the book. I'm continuing to work my way through it, and people can find you online at muzmurray.com, and the book is You Are the Light, Secrets of the Sages Made Simple. And thanks for spending some time with me today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.